Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani, and today I'm actually recording a special episode in person. I'm here with Dr. Fred Barrett at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. And as listeners of this podcast know, we've been really excited about the uh, research coming out of his lab and their lab around these psychedelic substances for a whole array of mental health disorders, uh, ranging from obsessive compulsive disorder to major depressive disorder, uh, as well as some of the work they're doing in human flourishing and well-being. So, Dr. Barrett, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks a lot, Shiv, for, for having me on. So, we always like to ask our guests in their own words to tell us what got them interested in science and, in your case, going down in neuroscience and, and, and medicine. What's well, a an interesting question. It's a little circuitous, so bear with me for a moment. I started my academic life as a music educator. Coming out of high school, I had experience with computers, and I'd been playing music for a while, and I decided that at that time, I, you know, I didn't want to sit behind a computer for the rest of my life and look at me now. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I also naively thought that there would always be jobs for music teachers, and, and I knew I loved playing music. And so I went into a program at Temple University for music education. And it was a really wonderful music education program. Uh, the music school at Temple is a tiny conservatory within a large state school atmosphere. And, uh, you know, one thing led to the other. And I, I uh, in my penultimate semester at Temple, I started getting into classes and realizing how much of a challenge it would be to try to be a successful educator, how many other struggles students especially in, you know, parts of the inner city in Philadelphia uh, would face, I began to wonder whether I was really cut out to do that. And at the same time, I was taking my psychology core courses at, at Temple and I got really into them and I thought, well, maybe if I get a minor in psychology, I can somehow be a better human to these kids that I'm going to be teaching. And so I stayed next year, I got a minor in psychology. And by the end of that, I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe instead of being a music teacher, I can be a psychologist and I can actually directly, more directly help people and uh, decided to get a double major in psychology and, and music education. So I stayed an extra year. And by the end of that final year, I, I said, well, you know, maybe I don't want to be a psychologist. You know, I really started to get into research and really got excited about the idea of, of generating new knowledge and, you know, really kind of diving in and, and dissecting the mind. And I realized I'd taken a couple large shifts in my career in a short period of time. So uh, I, at that point, secured a job. I graduated. I secured a job as a research assistant at the Schizophrenia Research Center at University of Pennsylvania. And that's where I really began to learn more about the scientific study of emotion. Uh, half of what I did was to code the back end of a of an online neuropsych evaluation tool, which was a neat experience. And the other half of what I did was help to conduct studies in patients with schizophrenia looking at different levels of emotional dysfunction and brain dysfunction. And, and that's where it kind of came together for me. I realized, you know, I was really interested in the brain and I realized in retrospect that my love of music was in some part driven by my interest in a love of using music to explore myself emotionally and to communicate with others emotionally. And, and also performing on stage leads to its own really unique and remarkable altered state of consciousness. And, and, uh, you know, I was really interested in that as well. So I, I started to look around at grad schools and I finally found a graduate school at UC Davis where I could bring it full circle. I found a, a lab, uh, Peter Janata at the center for mind and brain at UC Davis, where I could use music as a tool to study the brain. Peter's lab was studying music cognition, music perception, and we used computational models of music cognition to interrogate brain regions that were active and supporting the process of, of kind of experiencing music, right? And um, I thought, this is fascinating. This is what I need to be doing with my life, bringing my two loves together, music and you know the mind and the brain. And why weren't we using music as a tool to study emotion? Music is such a, a wonderful, naturally embedded, ecologically valid stimulus for exploring emotions. So many people around the world use music every day to regulate their emotions. Why aren't we using this tool for science, right? And that's what motivated me to get into grad school. And, and um, turns out that music is complicated because people are complicated. We have these 
tricky things called preferences and idiosyncratic relationships with songs and genres or by artists that we may not otherwise have any interest in or actually might actively dislike, except that one song is a trigger for a, you know, a deeply meaningful memory that you may have of, you know, some time when you were younger or someone that you knew, um, a loved one or a crush or, you know, a, best friends in high school or something like that. And so acknowledging that, it, you know, it can be difficult to precisely select a piece of music that will reliably evoke a specific emotion in a given individual at a certain point in time. And it's, a, it's actually a very challenging thing to do. Um, I was getting frustrated with that, but along the way um, at Davis, there was another grad student a couple of years ahead of me, Catherine McLean, and she was studying the effects of meditation on attention. And she graduated, came here to work with Roland on psychedelics, and, and they got uh, funding from the Hefter Research Institute and Bill Linton to conduct a study looking at the interaction of psilocybin in, in people with a long-term meditation practice. And one of the questions there was really, um, you know, is there any truth or, or any kind of basis for, for claims that seem to have been made for quite some time that psychedelics and Buddhism can bring you to certain similar altered states of consciousness. And so they got this funding and they got funding along the way to also do brain imaging within this study. And they decided that they would do brain imaging the day after psychedelic experiences to look possibly, well, maybe at the afterglow. And, you know, if we're looking at emotional function, Catherine thought, well, why don't we use music to do that? I know a guy. And so she sent me this series of emails and, you know, said, you know, how did you collect your data? How'd you analyze your data? How'd you design your study? All these things. Um, and I kind of tongue in cheek, uh, replied, hire me and I'll do it for you. And she said, okay. And so I was like, of course, yes. I mean, music is complicated, but, but drugs, we know all sorts of things about drugs and psychedelics are such powerful drugs. Those are, those are the tools that we need to be using to study emotion and memory in the brain. And, and, and so I, I was hired as a postdoctoral fellow and continued on uh, to a faculty position. And here I am. And it turns out that, you know, I thought music was complicated because people are complicated. It turns out drugs are also complicated because people are complicated, but now I find myself in this really remarkable and, and uh, incredible position to be able to study the effects of these drugs on the mind and the brain. And, and if, if along the way we can help somebody and it's starting to look more and more every day, like we may be able to help people with this, uh, then, then I feel like I almost have a moral obligation to continue. And it feels like this makes it even more important for us all to be good stewards of this science because of the potential that, that may be there for, for actually helping lots of people. hundred percent. And there's so many threads to pull on and just that, that intro. Um, and two of the ones I want to, I want to share is I remember listening to your podcast with scripts a couple okay. months ago and hearing that story about how you wound up at Hopkins and just, uh, kind of tongue in cheek, as you said, said, Hey, hire me as a postdoc. And, you know, I'm sure you were like 50%, 90% kidding, but then it happened. Uh, and so I'd love that story because I think so much of, one's career is serendipitous and maybe just asking for something you want. Uh, and so I, I, I want our audience to like learn that and remember that because sometimes if you don't ask, and my mom always used to tell me, if you don't ask, the answers always no by default. The second thread is, I think you were also on a, maybe that same podcast or your USC presentation talking about, you know, people ask you for advice. How do I get into psychedelic research or science? And um, your advice was don't get into it come in through a different angle. And in your case, it was being a neuroscientist, knowing functional and MRI really well, volumetric analysis and music, um, you know, this eclectic background. And certainly it seems like the center you've, you've built, the people you've assembled, uh, you and Roland have worked together on is a very eclectic group of people. So I want to go back to the music in a bit, but let's dive into the center. Tell us about how we got started and then maybe a bit about the current research, why you're so excited about the different threads and the faculty you've brought together. Yeah. One of the remarkable things about psychedelics is that they can touch so many different fields. There are so many different directions from which you can try to study psychedelics. There's so many different ways in which psychedelics may kind of contact people and, and, and kind of help move them. And this really provides a, a rich environment and a rich landscape for, for collaboration and for multidisciplinary research. In some ways, the, the Psychedelic Center is composed of an incredibly diverse faculty. In other ways, the Psychedelic Center is composed of very restricted faculty in that we all try to take a bit of a, a clinical trials or empirical research approach 
to studying psychedelics. But within that framework, we we do have a, a wide diversity of, of opinions and perspectives and expertise that's brought to bear here. I myself am a cognitive neuroscientist. I fashion myself as a cognitive neuroscientist, and some of the the questions that really motivate me are really looking at the interface of the hardware and the software, right? How do the brain and the mind interact to produce these experiences and how do psychedelics kind of perturb that? So some of the studies that I'm conducting are really focused on that. They're focused on trying to understand moment-to-moment changes in brain dynamics that occur when people are watching movies. So I'm collaborating with, with a colleague in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, Janice Chen, and with our joint grad student, Brian Winston, where we're really exploring the acute effects of psychedelics on people and their minds and brains while they're watching a variety of movies that evoke different emotions and have different scenes and social contexts. We believe there's a lot to unpack there in terms of um, brain dynamics and, and how uh, we can better understand how psychedelics perturb those brain dynamics. Other studies we're conducting, um, one with my postdoctoral fellow, Jada Sayala, we're looking at creativity and an insight. Uh, and also Jade is an expert in studying cognitive control. So we're, we're trying to better understand the effects of psychedelics on cognitive control. Cognitive control may represent um, a really important transdiagnostic therapeutic target of psychedelics. We can think of depression as, a, as in part a disorder of cognitive control and really cognitive flexibility. People, people often uh, when they're depressed, get stuck in a rut of thinking. Uh, and, and one of the ways of kind of describing this is with the cognitive triad. It's my fault. There's nothing I can do about it and it affects everything in my life. Um, if you get a, stuck in a rut of, of negative self-thought, uh, negative ruminations uh, that's, that's held together by those three kind of core ideas, then it's really something that's almost inescapable. And we can think of People who are ruminating on these negative thoughts, and this happens often in patients who are suffering from depression, that becomes the trap within which our minds are, are held. Uh, but if you had an intervention that could increase your capacity for cognitive flexibility, psychological flexibility, increase your capacity for changing the way that you think about yourself and your place in the world and your relationships, then maybe that could help you to break free of that trap. And we've, we have evidence now that psychedelics may be doing that. And so Jada and I are working on a lot more studies to, to disentangle that. Is that specifically the neuroplasticity effects, like upregulating you know, BDN, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor? Or is it other, other kind of methods? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's possible. I mean, so, and and this, this is one of the remarkable things about psychedelics is, yes, that, that is a compelling story. And that's a compelling kind of uh, explanation here. Uh, so many people in this space are working at different levels of analysis, right? So you have the work of David Olson at UC Davis and, and Alex Kwan, who's at Yale, and, and they're really working almost like at a, a neuronal level to begin to disentangle these questions of brain plasticity and the, the markers of that plasticity and the other mechanisms through which that plasticity may be occurring, that psychedelics may be engaging. You also have Goldolan, who's looking at critical windows of, of learning and, and opening of critical windows, all of these things at kind of the neuronal and molecular level uh, and, and also at the animal behavioral level are, are consistent with the story that we're trying to tell at the human brain systems and, and psychological functioning level. You know, it's a much different level of analysis, but, uh, you know, I think that all of these lines are beginning to converge and they're likely all related. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's Jada's work. Manoj Das, he's, he's a postdoctoral fellow who's an expert in uh, episodic memory, and he's working on the ways that psychedelics may impact memory acutely during the acute drug effect in a persistent fashion. Um, so those are all of the interests that I have and, and that my trainees and my colleagues are closely working on. But we have, of course, lots of other folks in the center. Um, you know, Al Garcia-Romu is, is actually doing a remarkable job now of, of breaking us into uh, a series of other indications. And so, you know, the lion's share of evidence for any therapeutic effect right now uh, with psilocybin can be found in the treatment of mood disorders and various kind of presentations or in substance use disorders. And, and so far, the published data really are pointing towards smoking and alcohol use. But Al's conducting a number of studies. Uh, in addition, he's been, uh, you know, helping Matt Johnson to conduct the smoking studies. He's also uh, breaking into a study hopefully soon in patients with cannabis use disorder. Uh, he's also actively conducting studies in patients with Alzheimer's dementia, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, and he has a few other ideas in his in his pocket that he's, he's hopefully going to pull out soon. But Al's been remarkable in, in being able to 
really pull off uh, a number of uh, early stage proof of concept trials in indications that may not seem completely obvious immediately, but but really fit a clear mold of psychedelics being able to treat some measure of mood and existential crisis that accompanies really intractable disorders. Oftentimes when people are diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, they, they really go through an existential crisis. It's a bit of a death sentence for the mind for some, and it can be really devastating to, to receive that diagnosis. There are, you know, cognitive deficits that accompany uh, the progression from mild cognitive impairment into Alzheimer's dementia, but some of those are are exacerbated or, or, or accelerated by the depression that can also come with that. And so yeah. I was really trying to target that experience. Um, a similar story can be told with post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we're at an important time in, in psychedelic science where we really need to know the limits of the indication space. Some people like to describe psychedelics as a cure-all. It'll cure what ails you. You know, I'm just waiting for that study to come out with psychedelics and gout or like, you know, <laughs> emphysema. Like, I, like, we shouldn't expect psychedelics to do everything. We really shouldn't. And I don't believe they will. But, you know, if you can make a compelling story or case for why we should extend a psychedelic into an indication, I think we also have an obligation to, to at least track that down at a pilot stage and, and see, well, is there anything there? And so Al's really kind of pushing the limits there, which is wonderful. Um, we also have... Sandeep Nayak, who's now breaking into a study in patients with opioid use disorder. Sandeep is a psychiatrist. That was really interesting and remarkable in that he's trained in transpersonal psychology. Sandeep is trained as a traditional psychiatrist. He has a great deal of interest in patients who are suffering from substance use disorders. The first study that he's going to get off the ground is is a really important population, especially in Baltimore, those with opioid use disorder. He's pairing psilocybin therapy uh, with a particular induction on buprenorphine to see that if we can get people at that stage in their treatment and their recovery, uh, we can prolong their adherence to medications and really uh, see if we can make an impact that is meaningful to, especially to underserved communities in the Baltimore region. This one's interesting, especially all of these are interesting, but this one I'll I'll stop and interrupt you if you don't mind, because so much of this research has been done on, uh, like most clinical trials, on higher socioeconomic status and, and white populations who have the time to go through this pretty intensive therapy, multiple hours of talk therapy beforehand and life story, followed by you know an eight-hour session twice, three times. Um, so not everyone can do that, but obviously the traditional opioid use uh, population tends to be lower socioeconomic status. Um, so that's really interesting, and uh, I'm glad that's gotten funded or getting funded. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's going to be conducted within the kind of framework of the center the Psychedelic Research Center. And uh, it's an incredibly important population. It'll be, it'll, it'll hopefully represent uh, an increase in, in representation and diversity of the samples that are being studied with psychedelics. Again, it's a really important point that, that you raised there. Um, Sandeep is also working on uh, putting together two additional studies, one in patients with PTSD and another in, in people who are interested in microdosing. So the PTSD angle is very interesting because people like to broadly identify a number of different compounds as psychedelic. And one of the closest compounds to psychedelics that people are studying right now is MDMA. It's not quite like psilocybin or LSD, but of course, MAPS has had an awful lot of success in pushing forward uh, a number of clinical trials to study the effects of MDMA in treating patients with PTSD. But an, an interesting kind of artifact within this space is that, you know, MDMA has been studied almost exclusively for PTSD, whereas nearly nothing has been done with classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD for the treatment of PTSD, whereas there's been a lot done with psilocybin for mood and substance use disorders, um, but nearly nothing done with MDMA in in those indications. And so um, now that MAPS is close to the starting line for MDMA, I do believe more folks are interested in figuring out whether MDMA can be used for the indications that psilocybin has been studied for and, and vice versa. So now uh, Sandeep is, is going to be hopefully getting approvals soon for a study in patients with PTSD with psilocybin. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be a, a tricky thing too, because psilocybin experiences can be vastly different than, than MDMA experiences. And whereas uh, MDMA may help people to approach their index trauma or traumatic experiences, uh, you know, 
from a, a more objective space in a way that they can engage with them without being overwhelmed by the emotional kind of charge of those experiences, psilocybin experiences can be very different. They can force you to confront things uh, fully emotionally charged. And one, one question is whether that will be safe for patients who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. But this is something that we're going to be exploring very carefully um, in as safe of a container as possible. And the microdosing question is obviously a big one, right? There have been a few studies of microdoses that have been conducted in the lab, uh, and, and, and by and large, uh, very, very little has been shown in terms of any effect of a microdose of psilocybin or LSD on, on attention or cognitive processing, emotional function, uh, well-being, these things. Um, one could rightfully criticize most of those papers by suggesting that, you know, it, that's not how microdosing works. If you're going to follow the Jim Fadiman model, you have to have a certain amount of LSD or psilocybin, you know, once every two or three days for six to eight weeks, and then things get better, right? And, and that's not necessarily what people have studied. Um, but the, the closest we've come to that as a field has been the Imperial College study, the citizen science self-blinding study that, that I believe showed, if anything, an effective expectancy and maybe a stronger effect in the placebo condition and some outcomes than, than the active drug condition. And that really is, is a, a bit of a damning outcome. But still, you know, this hasn't been studied quite with the exact formula in the lab. And, and that's one of the things that Sandeep is going to try to do. That's fascinating yeah. because microdosing has gotten a lot of attention and anecdotal evidence. And we've had Jim Adamant on the podcast yeah. before. It's definitely interesting. I'm very impressed with how people are trying to design studies around all these different aspects. I did want to ask you because your your center is very it's well known for not only reigniting the psychedelic renaissance as they say, but also having all these very interesting study designs. You know, as far as novel study designs, I've seen you know, we had Manish Agarwal at Sunstone on talking about the caregiver and the patient with cancer together uh, taking some psilocybin to see if that reduces anxiety and improves prosocial uh, connection between them. One that comes to mind, I don't know if it's been done is at least in the field, a lot of people are combining intactogens like MDMA and entheogens like psilocybin. They're doing both at the same time. What other like interesting designs have you seen or are you working on? We have a lot of ideas. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really interesting space. One of the challenges sometimes with designing studies of that nature uh, is, is that you almost have an infinite parameter space. And uh, oftentimes people, when they're, when they're beginning to consider study designs like that, they will go to underground therapists or, or what's being done recreationally. And one of the founders of the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit here within which the center exists was George Bigelow. And, and George was fond of saying humans are really good pharmacologists. We're usually pretty good at uh, knowing what makes us feel good, knowing what doesn't make us feel good. And then, you know, at a certain point, figuring out how to use drugs in order to make us feel good. And sometimes that gets us in real trouble, right? But, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about using uh, patterns of recreational use as, as a template or, or a hypothesis generating space for how we could study things in the lab. But the questions include, but are not limited to, well, when would MDMA and psilocybin or LSD be administered in relation to each other and what doses should we expect to be active in what ways? And and the problem then becomes that, you know, people don't always do exactly the same thing out in the world, right? I think that a lot of us are kind of beginning to ask that question. How can we use psychedelics together in concert? You know, could we, one of the terms is candy flipping. Yeah. Right? Is a hippie flip and a candy flip. I forgot. Hippie flipping is mushrooms and MDMA. And okay. candy flips, LSD. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think so. And yeah, so, so, what dose of LSD do you use? What dose of MDMA do you use? You can imagine, you know, a dose effect study where you're looking at multiple doses of LSD and multiple doses of MDMA. But then that, you know, if you just pick, you know, 50, 100, and 200 micrograms of LSD, and then, you know, 40, 80, and 120 milligrams of uh, MDMA, that right there is a three by three study yeah. trial design. That's nine different sessions. And then you also have a placebo condition. You maybe, you know, zero... 50, 100, and 200 micrograms of LSD, and then 0, 40, 80, and 120 milligrams of MDMA. 16, that's yeah. 16 sessions that you're putting someone through. And, and that's not even to think about the enduring effects of any of these right. conditions, right? I mean, you're, you could end up 
learning that, you know, giving someone 200 micrograms of LSD and 120 milligrams of MDMA leads to really powerful experiences, maybe overpowering experiences, maybe really wildly transformative experiences, but then how long will it take for a person to kind of recover from that to the degree that they would want to try to engage in another drug condition, right. not knowing what's coming next in your blinded, double blind, you know, study design. Right. Right. Um, I think there's a remarkable potential here for a lot of scientific discovery. Um, we just have to think about what the best study designs are going to be and, and, and then just approach that carefully. Totally. And you guys have been very methodical and that's why you come push the field as far along as you have over the past, say, 20 years now. When you look ahead to the next, so 20 years, what are you most excited about? Uh, and you can even say next two years, but I'm just curious where you see the field going and, and what are the things that get you up every day very excited about this? Well, I think that there's the obvious goal of trying to determine whether psilocybin can be approved as a medicine to treat depression and substance use disorder. I think that we, we have an obligation to really push as hard as we can to find out if psilocybin really is effective in that way and if it can be approved. But beyond that, there's so many other questions. I do think that psychedelics are very powerful tools that we can use to try to understand the brain basis of cognition, the brain basis of behavior. And I think that uh, while we may not be able to break the hard problem of consciousness open, we still there's still plenty of other very noble kind of questions to ask, uh, including but not limited to, well, what is really the basis of emotional function, the basis of emotional dysfunction? How do we play with receptor systems to, to help... Uh, push around states of consciousness, altered states of consciousness, right? How do we get people into the flow state? How do we get people out of the flow state? And I think something that's remarkable that can sometimes get lost in the, in the excitement over medical uses of psychedelics are that the very first few studies at Hopkins uh, with psilocybin were conducted in healthy, again, you know, as we noted, high SES, you know, very well-educated, mostly white samples, but these were healthy people who I don't want to say despite being healthy, but you know, even in the context of being healthy, uh, really endorsed a substantial increase in well-being and life satisfaction, decreases in anxiety, uh, increase in positive affect that lasted not only a day or a couple of days afterwards, but weeks, months, and you know, for more than fourteen months in most cases. And and uh, I like to say, well, you know, you had this really peculiar experience on a couch in a, in a small building in East Baltimore. Great. What happens when you go back to getting stuck in traffic and paying your taxes? <laughs> and people say, no, that, that, that was it. Um, you know, it's one of, the, one of the most remarkable findings that, that Roland encountered early on was that people would you know, endorse having the top five or single most personally meaningful and spiritually significant experiences of their lives. And and it really gets you thinking, um, you know, uh, we all exist on a spectrum. You know, no one is perfect, hardly anybody, right? And we all have an opportunity for growth, and we can all uh, use a bit more flourishing, right? And, and this is something that, that is hard to fit within a medical model of anything. Um, there are certainly people for whom psychedelics are not something to be encountered, that's the challenge for the field is really finding the hard limits of the, of the safety space, right? Um, and there's growing evidence to suggest that maybe we should not be giving these drugs to anybody who has a personal or family history of bipolar disorder or psychosis, right? Uh, it may be a very bad idea. There, there are case reports that are coming out in patients with bipolar or that may, may have had a vulnerability to psychosis, taking mushrooms and, and then having a, a pretty pretty traumatic and, and damaging manic episode, right? Right. It's, it's clear that, that there are sure to be people for whom psychedelics will not be safe. The same goes for like meditation, any sort of intervention, but certainly this one's a more re repeatable, it seems, and more powerful yes. version of that. Yes, and so no one's arguing that these are not powerful drugs. And, and no one, I think, is arguing, uh, at least in, in the scientific space, that you shouldn't treat these drugs with respect. But I think the idea is that with properly screened individuals in an appropriate setting with the appropriate preparation and support that these compounds and this, this approach may have 
benefits for those who are otherwise well, you know, people who don't meet criteria for, for DSM-5 diagnosis of any, any significant clinical severity, uh, still yet may be able to increase in their flourishing after having one of these experiences. What are the opportunities for spiritual growth? What are the opportunities for flourishing? What are the opportunities for increasing well-being? And uh, I think it's a very tricky question to ask, especially in a culture and a society where um, drug use overall is is frowned upon or, or prohibited or criminalized. You know, what's what's the answer? Uh, I, I don't want to make any claims about criminalization or decriminalization. I don't want to try to make any policy statements here. I'm not a policy person at all, but I just want to acknowledge that um, there's an opportunity for exploration here uh, that if we're very careful may have utility and value outside of the medicalization of these compounds. Yeah, totally. And then we're going to drop the link to your your talk at USC a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the slides that really resonated and I think our audience would be interested in because they lump drugs, Schedule 1, all in the same category. Yeah. Like, But they're very objectively very different where, you know, opioid, cocaine, these are highly addictive uh, substances. But I think one of the points you made is, you know, there's studies of animals being given psychedelic compounds and not necessarily continuing to try ingesting them. Or the LSD scale, I think you mentioned in that talk about how there is actually a scale that this is like not addictive because some people will self-regulate because generally they won't always have a positive experience and want to want to keep doing it. Well, there, there are a couple important points to make here. And one is that there are absolutely people who meet criteria for substance use disorder as applied to hallucinogens or psychedelics. So that's that's clear. Those people absolutely exist. That is a risk. But but the uh, rates at which people meet those criteria are far lower than for what we would consider typically misused drugs. Mm. The patterns of use and, and, and the kind of presentation of, of those people are vastly different than what you'd expect with, with typical you know misused drugs. So we have uh, a number of assays that we can use to try to determine the abuse liability of, of novel or known compounds. And then some of those methods have been developed, you know, here and, but, but they're, you know, widely known in the field. Those methods include, um, drug substitution, self-administration rates. If you have a novel compound and you can train an animal to self-administer that compound, the rate of self-administration then can become a proxy of abuse liability. And so, one of the classic example, examples is cocaine. You can train a rodent to press a lever to get cocaine. And if you allow a rodent free access to cocaine, they will eventually select cocaine over water or food, uh, and they will self-administer cocaine to death, um, which is tragic and, and terrifying, but reality. And, 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 and that really kind of is, I think, a good example of of, of the self-administration assay and, and, and how it can be used to determine abuse liability of a novel compound. Uh, you essentially have to bend over backwards to trick animals into self-administering psychedelic drugs. There was a paper published in 2004 by uh, William Fantagrossi uh, where he uh, essentially was able to get primates to, to self-administer psychedelics, but I, I believe the, the rates of self-administration were far lower than you'd expect with a classic misused drug and he had to kind of go to some lengths to coerce them and i think in my opinion into self-administering these drugs drug substitutions are a good proxy so if you have a known drug that can be misused you train an animal to reliably respond to receive that drug and then you give them a choice between that drug and another drug if there's a drug that is similar enough in its effects mm. or abuse and or abuse liability then you know fence you know imagine like training a rodent to self-administer um, oxycodone or hydromorphone, and then you allow them access to fentanyl. They'll they'll switch to using fentanyl. Right. And and if the drug if if another drug can substitute uh, in behaviorally, then then that's a marker that it could be have similar abuse liability to another known drug. Right. Right. Um, so psychedelics don't substitute for known drugs of abuse or yeah. misuse. Um, yeah. And and uh, you know the craving and withdrawal syndromes, uh, people don't typically develop craving or withdraw syndromes after the use of psychedelic drugs, people may have one of the most powerful experiences of their life. And they say, well, you want to do that tomorrow? And they say, of course not. No, <laughs> maybe never again. Maybe once was enough. And, and so that even, even for folks who do you know, self-administer psychedelics on a regular basis, the rate of, of, of re-administration of psychedelics is usually incredibly low. There are long periods of time between uh, when people will re-administer 
psychedelic drugs, right? And, and that goes to the kind of compulsive drug seeking, right? Which which uh, can be easily observed with typical drugs of abuse and misuse. This is often related to craving withdrawal syndromes. You know, the more you use a compound, uh, the, the more tolerance you build up to it, the more tolerance you build, the greater the withdrawal and the craving syndromes, which lead to reuse. And you get a shift of uh, a person initially using for kind of hedonic purposes, possibly then moving to a kind of a maintenance schedule so that they are avoiding the negative effects of not using. And that really is the, the development and maintenance of substance use disorder. That's the cycle of misuse and abuse. And um, psychedelics typically don't engender any of that. And the final point was that from the Addiction Research Center inventory. So this is a questionnaire that was developed by the Addiction Research Center here in Maryland a, a long time ago. It's a questionnaire with lots of different items. And, and once you're exposed to a drug condition, you can use this to rate the strength of all of these different aspects of your experience. And there are subscales within the questionnaire that, that really uh, describe like stimulant-like effects and sedative-like effects and, and things like this. And one of the one of the scales is the LSD scale within the Addiction Research Center inventory. And it mostly describes dysphoric effects of, of a drug. And, and yeah, the LSD scale, a compound that scores highly on the LSD scale is expected to be somewhat self-limiting. Those kind of dysphoric effects are limiting the abuse potential of, of whatever compound you've administered to people. And that's a really important point as well, that psychedelic experiences are not all fun and games. They're not all kind of fuzzy flowers and, you know, pastels and, and kaleidoscopic imagery. They can be terrifying. They can be panic stricken. They can involve the deepest depth of grief that you can imagine or maybe past that. They can be harrowing experiences and it's not for the faint of heart at all. You can experience incredible euphoria, but that's absolutely not guaranteed. It's a very different state of consciousness and, and, and landscape than, than people are typically used to experiencing with other kind of other drugs and substances. The experience of the psychedelic uh, is not similar to being intoxicated on alcohol. It's, it's not similar to being intoxicated with cannabinoids or being high, if you will. It's in ways somewhat similar and somewhat different than, than experiences people can encounter with, with MDMA. And so they're, they're, they're really not like other drugs. You know, these experiences are not to be entered into blithely or, or without a lot of care and preparation. And so, yeah, they don't act like typical drugs of abuse or misuse. They don't come with the same risks, uh, but we should also acknowledge that they don't come without risks. This is very helpful and something our, our audience should definitely take away because they're going to encounter people not only who are interested in this field, but any drugs, really. And one of the things that keeps me up at night with the platform we built at Osmosis as a medical education company is if you go back to the 1990s when OxyContin was starting to get to be prescribed regularly, um, there was one very short paper in a great publication, obviously New England Journal of Medicine, saying that OxyContin is not addictive. And I was in a hospital setting following these patients for months. It was not addictive. Very different than, hey, here's some OxyContin, take it home. And the continuing medical education companies, in part funded by Purdue Pharma and others, uh, wound up pushing this narrative too. And you know, there was all the ingredients, New England Journal of Medicine, and you know, great study. Um, and clinicians are busy. And so they may not fully understand the ramifications of any substances. My worry, and I think all of our worry is that, you know, any substance can be misused or or used correctly. You know, it's just a matter of the context. And um, what we don't want happening is this going the way of that or Timothy Leary, you know, yeah. back in the day. And so protecting against that. And everything I've seen coming out of your center has been very methodical. And sometimes I'm sure for you guys, painfully slow because, you know, the government still isn't, uh, hasn't changed things in, but hopefully, you know, coming across this nucleation effect in the next couple of years where the, the, the research foundation you all have built will lead to some real-life therapeutic applications. Last two questions for you, and I'm sorry for taking so much of your time. One is, um, you know, again, going back to your music roots, when we spoke the first time, remember you mentioned you'd worked with Charles Lamb. Uh, I remember his great ENT lecture about uh, jazz creativity and rap creativity with fMRI scanners. We talked about human flourishing. I'd love to hear your thoughts as a musician, as a neuroscientist, um, about 
creativity? You know, just any general thoughts on creativity and, and, and maybe any examples of studies you've done in this space. And maybe can that be applied beyond music creativity to other forms of creativity? For example, research design or starting a company. There's a lot of forms of creativity. So I mentioned how I think psychedelics may help to increase cognitive flexibility and the capacity for cognitive flexibility. I think that story uh, works quite well when thinking about creativity. What is creativity except for some form of cognitive flexibility? A paper that that, uh, Jada Sayala and I just published in Neuron uh, is essentially kind of a review and synthesis of a few different literatures, all, all in service of proposing that psychedelics may have their therapeutic effects by altering the balance of meta-control in the brain. Meta-control is a series of processes by which we adapt our behavior and our behavioral strategies in order to best respond to a given demand in the environment at, at a time. And it, within meta-control uh, framework, you, you essentially have a balance of, of cognitive flexibility or stability, right? And, and you may imagine certain tasks that would be kind of more efficiently conducted with one or the other, right? If you if you have to sit down and focus and write a paper or conduct an analysis, you're really going to benefit from an awful lot of stability, but you know at the cost of flexibility and at the cost of being able to respond flexibly to other things, right? So if you can approach that task with a lot of cognitive stability, you're going to be a lot more efficient, focused in conducting and finishing that task. Um, but you can imagine. Um, Lots of situations in which cognitive flexibility could be helpful in maybe in responding to questions at the end of a scientific lecture, right? You never, you don't know what question is going to come at you. You have to be able to kind of think fast, think on your feet, and, and, and adapt to kind of a really quickly shifting environment, right? Whereas if you were kind of deeply entrenched in some kind of stability space, you may not be able to as efficiently and effectively respond to whatever questions are going to be lobbed at you, right? Um, and so... We go about the world humaning, and as we're humaning, we're kind of balancing these things throughout. But you can imagine people getting into a rut of being stuck in one or the other. It may be that uh, people who are suffering from some form of psychosis are stuck in a flexibility mode that they can't get out of to to the kind of detriment of any stability or uh, ability to kind of uh, adapt to the environment in the way that's necessary to to behave in in an appropriate way. You could also imagine psychiatric illnesses that are marked by stability, overstability, depression, and substance use disorder. You know, a, a really re- reduction of your behavioral repertoire, a reduction of your cognitive repertoire, psychological repertoire, stuck in a rut of responding in only a certain way or, or really preferencing your behaviors in a certain way. And so the theory goes that psychedelics may acutely bias us towards flexibility in a way that is then kind of adaptive and instructive. So we're, we're, we're building more and more evidence to suggest that, that acutely psychedelics may really tip the, be- the scales in favor, heavily in favor of uh, increased cognitive flexibility. That may be one of the reasons that psychedelics present a risk for people who have a, a vulnerability for psychosis. Maybe that's a little too much. Mm. After that experience, uh, you know, you, you can imagine someone who is in a state of uh, overemphasized stability or overweighted stability being administered a psychedelic, it acutely and temporarily rebalances the scales in the other direction. And through that experience, people can learn the, the value of meta-control or learn the value of cognitive flexibility. Uh, and along the way, in, in, in a kind of neuroplastic period that follows, given the right context and framing and, and the right integration and psychotherapy, people may be able to then integrate that into a more balanced strategy overall. Mm. Right. But how does this relate to creativity? Well, that may also be the process through which people, if they do increase creativity acutely or subacutely, that that's the context and the mechanism through which it happens. And, you know, this, this kind of hits on a point that my postdoc fellow and colleague Manoj uh, likes to try to make, which is that um, we don't really know. Pe- people like to say that under the effects of psychedelic drugs, they have insights, right? And and from clinical spaces, we do believe that uh it's possible that people have personally meaningful psychological insights during their psychedelic experience that really form the basis of their healing. You know, wow, I I realized it was this aspect of my relationship that I need to fix. And that's what I'm going to fix moving forward. In fact, that that happened to a patient in 
a study that I'm conducting in patients with major depressive disorder and co-occurring alcohol use disorder. Um, after this experience, uh, one, of, one of the participants in the study came back the next day for integration. During integration, the first thing we do is ask a person to just kind of walk through what they think happened. And this individual said, you know, at one point, my, myself went away. I went away, but then I saw myself through the eyes of a number of my loved ones, through, you know, through the eyes of my child, through the eyes of my spouse, through the eyes of my ex-spouse. And I began to really see, wow, that's, you know, see how much they love me and how much they're trying to help me. And as they said, they finally saw how their behaviors were destructive and, and how they could begin to adjust their behaviors and respond more appropriately to their loved ones and their life. And they said, like, I, I get it. You know, I, I finally, I know what I need to fix it. I want to fix it. I never knew before. I had no idea. That personal insight really formed the core of his, if you'll forgive me for the language, his healing journey, you know, after that. And, and um, it's those personal insights that occur during psychedelic experiences that really seem to push people forward. Minoj's question is, are those insights real? Do we really have insights or do we just reconstruct all of this after the fact and turn it into an insight? Or, you know, imagine a, a healthy individual who says, ah, I was having a psychedelic experience. I had this amazing insight. Um, you can think of parallels with other drug classes. Uh, people, when, when they're intoxicated with alcohol or cannabis, may think that they have really deep insights. But, you know, the next day, even if they write them down, it may, may not have been quite as groundbreaking of an idea that they had. But do the insights that we have, we think we have with psychedelic drugs, are they, are they kind of veridical, right? It's possible that, that we feel like we have insights acutely, uh, but people can also experience disorientation and, and, and a, a, some level of kind of thought disorder during psychedelic experiences. It may be that it's not the acute drug effects that allow us creativity and insight, but the post-acute flexibility that occurs or neuroplasticity within which if we're careful to shape that neuroplasticity we then have real insights and things that then could be applied to you know an engineering problem or composing a, an opera or you know writing a book or whatever creative outlet you have you know we can be creative like you said in all sorts of ways with study designs with uh, team building exercises with coming up with a new play that you're going to roll out on the field, right? Uh, and and I think there's a lot of potential here. And if these are kind of creativity-inducing compounds, I, th I think it comes down to meta-control cognitive flexibility. Learning so much in this podcast. So thanks for going over. All right, last two questions, I, I swear, because, again, there's so many questions we could pursue here. The first is, again, just given your the work you're doing here, the fact that consciousness is in the title of the center, obviously, many people are excited about artificial intelligence and scared by AI. I would love to hear your thoughts on how you look at AI, especially the last couple of uh, months of developments. And then what does it mean to be human? Like, obviously, I don't expect you to answer that question, but what does it mean to be human in an age when AI will do a lot of knowledge work better than most humans can? So I'm reading a book on nihilism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great start. And, and um, it's remarkable. Um, I think I think we're going to be really challenged in the way that Kant and Hume and others were challenged and Nietzsche uh, to really figure out what we think knowledge is and are things knowable. The thing that terrifies me about AI is is a complete obliteration of trust in content mm. yeah uh this is something that uh, folks telegraphed a year or more ago i mean we're never going to be able to trust a video again and in a, in a time where we are so toxically politically polarized i fear that the wrong radicalized group of individuals is going to see the right or maybe the wrong you know deep fake to just kind of tip us into a really dark place uh, if we're not there already, right? Was it Buckminster Fuller who said something like, you know, we, we have the means to end world hunger and poverty. We mm -hmm. just don't have the political will, you hard. know, now more than ever, you know, yes, thought workers uh, were the new kind of factory workers, right? And now 
so many programming jobs are going to go away. So many writing jobs are going to go away. So many other jobs. I mean, we're still at the point where you can get ChatGPT to write something for you, but you really need a human to go over it and make sense of it, make sure it's accurate and real. I mean, hallucinations in ChatGPT are, are still a huge problem, right? Like, right. Um, what, one of our research coordinators recently asked ChatGPT to write a kind of summary and an intro to a paper for a topic. And, and they actually cited a paper of mine that didn't exist. Yeah, exactly. and, and I was, I was, I, I felt incredibly humbled to be, to be cited by chat GPT, but, but, you know, for a paper that I had never written. Not yet. No, well, I, maybe that's the problem. It's, wow. The singularity is, is coming. But, um, I hope that we can eventually somehow use this opportunity to rethink what class structure should be in society and, and ask openly the question of why we're obsessed with uh, forcing ourselves into profit models and, and a world in which you need to justify your existence by, by producing money. Yeah. Can we move past that? We have the capacity to feed everyone. We have the capacity to treat everyone if we lived in a different model. Right. But we don't live in that model. It could be a fantasy to believe that anything else could exist at this point because we're all so deeply entrenched in the way things are working now. Uh, I fear that people won't be able to break out of that and to think of different ways of the world being, right? Right. But maybe chat GPT needs to evolve and, and lead to kind of restructuring the way that we think about jobs for us to get there. I don't know. I'm really deeply speculating now. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like, it's the zeitgeist. And uh, yeah. it reminds me of Einstein's quote, which is, you can't solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that created it. Mm. Last question. What advice do you have to our audience? And then any other thoughts you want to share with us? Uh, obviously, we could talk for hours, but parting words of, of wisdom. I think we need to be hopefully optimistic, but cautious in this space. We cannot treat psychedelics like a panacea. We need to be skeptical and rigorous in approaching questions about efficacy and safety, but we need to be equally open-minded about the ways that these psychedelics may be helpful to people broadly in the world. Great parting words. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Barrett. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, Chip, and I'm happy to share with your community. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.